the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, we look at the bushfire threat and the rain and the flooding. Well, it's really hit the quality side of grain production this year. Still a bit too early to get a good sense of how much production has been lost due to that wet weather and flooding. Really, I mean, the start of it was mid-October um, when it really started to rain on top of already very wet soils and things like that. Uh, and from that time, so the question has been about, uh, was initially mostly concentrated on the quality issue, so being too wet gets downgraded from um, you know, milling down to feed grade. But as it wore on longer, uh, and water sat there for, for a longer period of time on some crops in some places. Um, the issue of uh, quality is probably probably not as large, uh, the issue of quantity rather, probably not as large as quality still, but it's, it's bigger than it was. We'll hear more about uh, the grain situation. Also, mouldy canola as well. We'll hear about that too. Uh, you might want to let us know what's happening at your place, zero four six seven nine double two six eight four is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. But for, first up today, with all this rain around, it might be surprising to talk about bushfires, but it's important because many parts of Australia, as we know, we saw above average, in some cases, record rainfall. Record rainfall, uh, the highest rainfall ever recorded in quite a number of spots throughout New South Wales. We saw significant flooding, as we know. We're just talking about that there, the saturated ground. Many of the regions out west as well, of course, supports enhanced vegetation and fuel load growth as well. This uh, causes concerns about bushfires for the coming summer. We're joined now by Rob Rogers, who's the New South Wales Rural Fire Service Commissioner. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So we're, I guess that's it's weird to be talking about, uh, you know, bushfire threats when we're seeing so much flooding, but um, flooding and rain means vegetation. That means potentially big grass fires. Yeah, particularly, as you say, the grass fires. That's the thing that uh, obviously we're quite concerned about. And that's just simply because the grass, as, as your listeners would know, grows so quickly following uh, that rain and the water table being so high, it's going to keep growing that grass the whole time. And then as summer comes on, and we're already starting to see now days are getting warmer, it's definitely a lot different than it was 12 months ago. Um, you know, we're starting to see more traditional uh, days of warmer weather that we haven't had for the last year or so. So that, that grass will grow. It'll start to dry off then, um, and obviously that will be really easy to burn. And, and some of these areas... When we were on the back of a, a four-year drought previous to that 2019-2020 um, fire season, um, there was nothing out there to burn. And now, obviously, there's a lot of uh, grass growing. Um, we've had destocking because of the drought. We've obviously had some uh, major issues because of the floods. And uh, and obviously, we're just simply saying, and look, and it's not right now. It's it's in January, February is the, is the time that we're concerned about. And it's anywhere in New South Wales that's really west of the dividing ranges. And even in some cases, that can extend, um, you know, in places like the Hunter, where, you know, even to the east of the ranges, there's quite a lot of grassland. But, but really, that focuses on... Um, the western part of the uh, after the western side of the ranges that's our concern and looking at the map too because the authorities are saying basically it's uh, well over 50 percent of new south wales that they're saying is in sort of the red zone for for january should we get that hot dry windy weather yeah exactly and and that again is just 
you're just seeing so much, and look, and, and uh, your listeners living out there would just see how much uh, grass growth is there, and we're watching that quite uh, closely, and you're seeing some areas are getting uh, six tonnes per hectare of grass, uh, land fuel, which is very high fuels for grass, and um, and that will burn if it, if it dries out, and uh, and obviously if this rain now stops, then uh, that drying out, and when those fires burn, if they're on a strong wind day, they can travel enormous distances and cause a lot of devastation. They're obviously a very different fire than a bushfire, but they nonetheless they're they're quite dangerous, and if you get caught in them, um, you know they they will kill. I mean, the other thing is I think that the grass for the biggest ever bushfire we had in Australia in the Northern Territory and uh, the top part of South Australia was a grass fire. It, had, it, it burnt out the biggest number of hectares. I think it was in the early 70s. So it is a threat. It will burn large areas. And uh, it, as, as you say, they move very fast. They do. And, and I think one of the things we, we're very conscious of, um, the impact on rural land now is also that, mm. you know, we, they've, they've had, drought and they you know then we've we've gone into these flooding rains and and significant flooding and uh the last thing we want to see now is uh, obviously people losing stock and fencing and that to fires so we just want everybody to be alert be be guarded from next month on um we even now we're starting to see a few grass fires take hold we're getting uh around them fairly quick and it's interesting that we're even getting our fire trucks bogged trying to put out some of these grass fires which you would understand with the amount of rain so Look, it's a, it's a weird position that we've got that, that the, the ground is still saturated, but the grass is starting to dry out and you can fire burning across it. But um, but look, that, that won't last, and uh, we just need to be ready for that um, in January, February. And I guess the other thing is some of those areas we're talking about are quite isolated, so the fire might start out there. So people, landholders, pastoralists, uh, you know, because of the damage they can do, uh, you know, to the to um, re- reducing their their pasture holding, their grass holding, and uh, also um, life and property and houses and things, if they do see any sign of a smoke or anything, uh, let the RFS know. Yeah, absolutely. Report it to Triple Zero straight away, and don't assume someone else has done it. And I think for farmers, um, if you can keep that, you know, slashing on the fence line, and just try and keep a bit of a fuel break around your paddock, so in case something does start, um, it'll help prevent it from getting out. But also, someone else might, you know, might prevent a fire coming into your property. So um, maintaining that and keeping those slashed is is really important to help us contain fires, so that they just don't keep going through properties because if it really gets a big head of steam up then there's not a lot we can do apart from try and protect properties uh, from impact but wait till the end of the day and the winds to calm down and then we get in some you know uh, machinery and try and contain these fires but when they're really moving fast they're very very difficult to stop Rob Rogers appreciate your time and it's odd as you say it's just flooding we're dealing with the flooding and of course we need to be worried about bushfires and the grass growth and the fuel load and those things already looking at January Uh, thanks for your time on the program today thanks very much it's uh, 12 minutes past 12 You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, the ABC is helping to raise money for the food charity Oz Harvest today. One of the farmers who's had a long relationship with them is stone fruit and citrus grower James Duffel from Crickle Creek near Griffith. He told David Clawton about the work the organisation does and some of the challenges farmers face in supplying them with food. 
through COVID, they started up doing uh, relief hampers where they were banking up um, dry and fruit and vegetable hampers and they made uh, hundreds of thousands of these and they distributed to lots of different areas, uh, to rural, to um, uh, to any like um, flood disasters, to people that were uh, isolated and um, you know, suffer, uh, struggling through COVID. Mm. They've got and 25 we, vans and, and working all over the, the city. I think they've got a, a, some operations up in the north coast after the floods up there. Oh, they've got lots of different types of operations. This is just a tiny, it's still just a small part. And when I, where, where I was involved with that was just trying to help bridge the um, relationship between people with growers or um, with any type of um, products that could be um, utilised in those hampers. Yep. And, um, yeah, so that's what I was trying to do. And How does we that food get from the farmers to Oz Harvest? Oh, a lot of the time it'll come through um, um, some farms that, well, it depends on what product it is, but it can be done directly. It can be picked up by them, can be picked up through food bank, can be picked up by us. Um, some things are like, for example, it could be sweet potatoes. There's too much. Um, at the moment, uh, on the market floor, in from from certain markets, so and if they got um, more supply of sweet potatoes coming up, they will probably waste those sweet potatoes. Even though the sweet potatoes pretty much there's not much of a problem, the farmer would rather try and get his you know crop out there. And if there's you know a pallet sitting there that that's um, uh, can't be sold, and instead of trying to sell it cheap and drop the price of the market, they'll probably waste it. So that waste that can be utilised through Oz Harvest, even though there was nothing wrong with the product. It's, yeah. uh, I noticed Food there. Bank have uh, an outlet at the Adelaide market. Do they have one at Sydney as well? Yeah, they they uh, like they have a um, uh, they have a truck that comes in. I think um, every day or two or, two or three times a week, and um, and they pick up like tons and tons of produce. Mm. So farmers, a lot of farmers would be contributing to that that we don't even know about. Oh, there's heaps of farmers contributing to food bank. There's one down in Griffith, and they send um, stuff to that to food bank all the time, mm. all the time. And wholesalers as well would be playing their part, would they? Wholesalers do too, definitely. Wholesalers do. It's a good way for them to clear out stock and also, you know, keep their keep their floor open for new new stock arrival. And um, I think they they must get a um, some taxes in. Uh, incentive for it as well i think so, there, there, there is quite a discussion going on about the tax treatment for these kinds of things so i'm not quite sure where that's at well i just think always costs money like uh, and, and it's the person who um upfronts that cost is the farms i think there should be more incentives for farms to get something back for that and um um and really try and promote you know, um, more of a, um, uh, let's say, a abnormal-looking, you know, product. Well, the yeah, markets, the supermarkets are doing that, aren't they, with the sort of their odd bins and their odd-shaped products. There's a there's a separate stand usually in the supermarket for that now. I'm sure it's quite lucrative for them as well. Yeah. In what way? I don't think, well, I'd say they still buy it quite cheap and sell it for a, a good profit. Mm. And what, when, when you talk about anything back for that. Yeah, well, exactly. So what kind of mechanism would help? With that, what do farmers need in order? Well, to be first up, <clears throat> maybe you'd be looking at look, maybe some sort of um, tax incentives in um, in paying for picking, or there'd be um, some sort of subsidies involved 
for um, transport or for packaging or for or just or just for your number two lines that you know you're not you don't actually make enough to break even at all let alone to pay the costs of the pickers or the farming costs or or anything to do with sending it away and getting it packed and sent away mm. so what 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 incentives are there for a farm to try and utilize their waste if there's not if they go backwards by doing it yeah Right, and and with Oz Harvest, what are your aspirations there? I mean, I know you, you you're losing money every time you you donate no, food, not, obviously. No, not, but... not 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 necessarily. Oz Harvest have been really good, to be honest, because Oz Harvest constantly try and um, when they can, they will try and buy and and give money back to growers. Oz Harvest have put so much effort in to understand that food waste costs money as well. So when they have the ability to, they they will put they put money through to try and help growers to get that that waste from them, understanding that there's a cost involved to um, to farm it, to pick it, to send it. Um, so part of the ABC's Giveathon today is to raise money for Oz Harvest. So some of that money would be going back to farmers to compensate them for donations, right? Oh, they definitely do. Yeah, put your hands in your pocket and grab some out. I reckon what that organisation and her team are doing is fantastic. James Duffel, who's a citrus grower in Griffith, there talking about Oz Harvest. Of course, today is the Giveathon, the 29th of November, Tuesday, the 29th of November, the day, the kick off, the day of giving. And Fiona from New South Wales of Harvest is talking here about the cost of living challenges and how everyday people are the recipients of food relief. The ABC New South Wales Gibbs Appeal. Fiona Nern. I am the National Media and Comms Lead for Oz Harvest. Over the past couple of years, we have seen the need go through the roof, following on from bushfires and then the pandemic. Uh, so many more people are food insecure, and now the rising cost of living has actually taken over as the number one reason that people are food insecure. Those statistics were just confirmed by the Food Bank Hunger Report, and we see the need in the community every day. I think the main thing that has been different is the, the people that need food relief. So um, during the pandemic, you know, so many people lost their jobs. International students needed help, temporary visa holders. These are people that had never needed food relief before. And now with the rising cost of living, people are really struggling to put food on the table. These are everyday people, people with jobs and mortgages, families. They just can't afford to make ends meet. So after paying bills, healthcare bills, energy bills, their rent, there's just nothing left for food. To donate, head to abc.net.au slash nswgives. And still on that theme, we're joined now by Matt Rose, who's the Advocacy and Sustainability Lead at Ovs Harvest. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Now, we heard there from uh, talking to the farmers, uh, one of the farmers who uh, donates or is involved in Oz Harvest, he was saying it might be a good idea to think about things like tax breaks or subsidies for farmers if they're thinking about donating food. Has there been any talk in the organisation or moves along those lines? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Food Bank, Second Bite and Oz Harvest, the three kind of big food donation and food relief organisations have been talking about that for a while. And last week, we actually released a national food donation tax incentive paper with um, our friends at KPMG. So there's a lot of talk about how we can make sure that farmers and other suppliers can get back some of the money that, that we know that they put into, you know, donating food. 
um, I think that's really important to, to... So there's an incentive for farmers who already do it to keep doing it and there's an incentive for farmers who are thinking about it to start donating more of their food as well. And we've also seen that whole issue of, you know, the, the second produce, the second uh, tier produce that doesn't make it on supermarket shelves. It might be a place there too in donation as well. Oh, absolutely. There is millions of tonnes of food out there in Australia. You've probably heard it today. There's 7.6 million tonnes of food wasted in Australia every year. About 20% of that is um, comes from farms. So there's, yeah, there's massive amount of opportunities to use that food. And we also hear about uh, a lot of Australia's poor are based in regional areas, I suppose. Is there uh, a possibility of maybe, I know that uh, you know some of the organisations are based in capital cities. Is there, is there maybe talk about setting up more or increasing the number of regional food hubs to get that food to those people that are, that are struggling in those uh, bush towns and bush cities that uh, need a bit of help to shorten that, uh, the time frame to supply them with, with food when they need it? Yeah, absolutely. Regional food hubs are really important, both for that issue of farmers n- not having to transport their surplus food so far um, to, to one central point where perhaps it can then be picked up and moved to other places. But also, as you just described, there is obviously a need for food relief in regional areas, just like there is all over the country. So regional food hubs in terms of yeah, establishing that one-stop shop place where people can come and get food i think is uh, i think it's really critical for um yeah people in regional australia so something that you're looking at or something that's on the drawing board as yet any ideas where they might be well i think for us it's absolutely that those kind of things need government support and government planning um so we've we've in recent times we've been talking a lot to governments about the importance of the food system um in general but the importance of regional food hubs as part of that so I, note, I noticed that the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry recently on food production recommended regional hubs. So we're hoping that those kind of ideas will be taken up by governments um, to help, I guess, the food rescue, food relief organisations and the farmers. Um, it helps us link link the kind of supply chain together, which is really important. And what about the idea of reducing? You talked about long distances that many uh, that a lot of the food has to travel. Reducing waste in the system, reducing uh, waste in the cold chain when you move food long distances, mm-hmm. refrigeration, uh, a big problem. Um, Oz Harvest obviously thinking about that too. Yeah, absolutely. So about twenty percent of all vegetable and f- uh, fruit produced in Australia is lost because of problems in our cold chain and Australia obviously we have to transport food you know remarkably long distances but our cold chain infrastructure we need needs to be looked at there seems to be a lack of education perhaps amongst the way the food is moved and the way it's treated and so what we know through talking to um, people in the through food rescue and food relief in the supermarkets is that problems in the cold chains mean sometimes food isn't stored properly so it has to be discarded and that's a big problem. So I think there needs to be a push across the sector and across governments to, to do more education about how food is better needs to be better protected through the cold chain and how, how we have to maintain that across the whole supply chain. Matt Rose, appreciate your time uh, and uh, also for going through some of the detail there as well about farmers can help and also people donating to Oz Harvest today uh, uh, here on the ABC with the Giveathon. Thanks for your time on the program today. Thank you. Matt Rose, who's the Advocacy and Sustainability Lead at Oz Harvest. You're listening to The Country Hour.
on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, Coles is expanding its carbon-neutral beef range with customers in New South Wales, South Australia and Tasmania now able to purchase the product. The new products were launched in Sydney this morning. And David Clawton spoke to Coles and one of their suppliers, Daniel Mathy, a cattle producer from Holbrook, Holbrook in New South Wales. And uh, he asked him what he's changed on the farm to make his beef carbon neutral. We've planted a lot of trees. Uh, so these have the dual advantage of offsetting emissions as well as providing shade for the herd and preventing erosion. Uh, we've implemented best practice soil and pasture management to increase the amount of carbon we're storing in the soil. So soil testing paddocks applying the appropriate uh, nutrients that are required for those paddocks. Uh, pasture management is targeted rotational grazing, uh, leaving the correct residual ground cover, uh, putting more area into perennial pastures, so there's more green feed, more time of the year. Going, at, going at extra effort to get the best cattle genetics available to increase herd productivity. Uh, we've installed multiple solar panels for farm electricity use, including pumping water to our cattle. How many panels uh, have you got now? We've got about 50 kilowatts of panels. So how has Coles been helping you out in that regard? I mean, obviously, they're paying you for your beef. Do they give you a premium or do they support you in other ways? That's right. Uh, Coles is is paying a premium and they are um, doing an excellent job of providing us with the resources uh, to people to talk to to able to minimise our carbon emissions. Right. And when you say you've been doing rotational grazing so you're obviously resting quite a bit of the land when you're doing that and you're you're putting nutrients on to promote the growth so the more that your pasture grows the more carbon the grass can store in the soil yeah so that's right so what are you seeing in terms of your carbon levels uh they have been increasing steadily uh, over the years but it is a very it's a long-term gain game uh with the soil carbon um i think some more short-term things where we're seeing immediate results from uh herd productivity so we're putting a very strong emphasis on turning our cattle off at a younger age uh, and higher weights when possible Um, so how does that help in terms of your carbon footprint so the carbon footprint is measured on the basis of kilograms of live weight sold so if each as a breeding producer uh, we have to run a cow and if we that cow isn't getting in calf it's gone Um, and for every cow we run their progeny, we want to put on the maximum amount of, of weight gain as fast as possible uh, to justify having that cow and to reduce that cow's emissions and the offspring's emission per kilogram of light weight gained. So I suppose in some respects, the faster they grow, the quicker they get to an age that they can be, they can, they can be processed and that has less impact on the environment. Is that fair to say? Yes, Definitely. And what about your carbon credits? Because that's the thing that you could sell. Have you sold those to Coles? No, we're still in the industry, uh, early stages of that process. We're investigating all our options. Um, so no, not at this stage. Because a lot, uh, of, Coles, lot of farmers are getting advice not to sell because obviously that might shut you out of other markets, particularly in the EU. Yeah, so we, we are treading carefully in that regard. We are uh, engaging with yeah, private consultants to make sure that we make the right decisions. Um, but... Coles is definitely excited to be buying carbon credits from us directly, uh, but we just want to make sure that we're making the right decision. Also at the launch today in Sydney is Dr Stephen Wiedemann, who's the Managing Director of Integrity Ag and Environment. That's a big title. Uh, Stephen, can you explain what that means with Coles? 
Uh, look, I oversee and manage this project and program for Coles and have been doing so since the beginning a couple of years ago. So it's been a long journey, but uh, we've we've got there now and we're in the rollout phase, which is really exciting to see. One of the key things around this is, is consumer confidence in that message that this is a more sustainable product. How does Coles measure that? Yeah, look, as as science partner, that's part of our role. We do that certification work. We certify effectively the emissions and any carbon removals on every farm that's in the program and uh, right through the supply chain as well, so through processing as well. And then it's not just it's not just us and our word for it either. Our work is then third party verified. And finally, it's approved by Climate Active, who are the, the sort of certifying body and they're part of the federal government. And what are you finding when you, when you look across all of the producers like Daniel Matthew in New South Wales and Holbrook? We did ask him how much carbon he's storing. We didn't get a number of that. What are you seeing across the board? Yeah, look, the tricky thing is it takes a long time to certify a farm to be carbon neutral. Uh, in a way that we can put it on a shelf, on a brand. Uh, so that's realistically a five-year journey. So we're confident, you know, we're, we're delivering that um, that carbon-neutral beef um, and the, the farms are, you know, I know it like, probably sounds a little bit ambiguous, but part of that challenge is uh, take an issue like soil carbon, you're three to five years to certify how much soil carbon you're building. So... It, it's in process. It's, it, it takes takes time to get that certification bit done. I suppose the other question really is about carbon credits. Like Coles has has a, a desire to be carbon neutral too in the future, but but Daniel's saying oh, I want to weigh up my options in terms of selling you carbon credits. Uh, yeah, look, carbon credits are a part of the picture. They're, they're a useful sort of tool uh, and. Uh, for my part, I think it is best that the credits off a farm go with the product off that farm and, uh, uh, you know, really transfer them through the market that way. Meaning that they would go to Coles? Oh, look, in this instance, uh, look, I think Coles is, is, is taking a leading role in this area, but I'm sure it won't be the last. In industry and MLA here have the target of 50% of beef going through low-carbon and carbon-neutral supply chains um, in, in the next decade. So this is really the you know, the leading edge of it, um, and we'll see a lot more to come. Dr Stephen Wiedemann from Coles speaking there to David Clawton about their new carbon-neutral beef range. It's uh, 29 minutes to one. Shortly we'll have the latest on the weather, but before we do that, let's get some news headlines from Adam Story. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Michael. Last week, uh, flight attendants were uh, threatening to take industrial action unless they could get a pay deal out of Qantas. Well, there's more threat to air travel uh, in the weeks ahead with aviation firefighters uh, planning to walk off the job next Friday. Uh, The United Firefighters Union says understaffing is putting passenger safety at risk and uh, staff in every aviation fire station across the country will stop work for four hours on December the 9th. So that could cause a few problems on that day. Uh, The Indigenous leader Noel Pearson has delivered a uh, massive spray at the Nationals leader David Littleproud after the uh, party decided to oppose... Uh, an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Um, Mr Pearson says the Nationals had previously expressed support for the voice and uh, he then launched an attack on Mr Littleproud's leadership and described him as a... uh 
uh, a kindergarten kid, not a leader, amongst uh, other things. So, a bit of a hot day down in Canberra. Um, <laughs> in uh, state politics, uh, the pre-selections of... Well, not really claimed a victim. She'll get to stay in the upper house, but uh, one of the rising stars of the party, uh, Rhodes Minister Natalie Ward, uh, she lost her pre-selection. She wanted to move to the lower house and was seeking pre-selection in the safe North Shore seat of Davidson, but she lost to former political staffer Matt Cross, 85 votes to 95, and there's been a, f- a few of those uh, unexpected mm. results in yeah, uh, pre-selections yeah, in about, about um, three recent of them. weeks yeah. and months. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, and Australia Post says uh, the severe weather uh, and uh, the events uh, surrounding it uh, causing uh, delays in deliveries. Uh, says it's working hard to get uh, deliveries out as smooth as possible, but a number of events, including the floods and, of course, the derailment of the Melbourne to Adelaide rail link, uh, didn't help things with uh, getting goods no, doesn't uh, shipped th- across. That doesn't <laughs> help at all. That's right. Almost, uh, oh, geez, it was almost a week, I think. There's quite a few. There's quite a yeah. lot of work going on on rails across New South Wales because of the flooding, I, yeah. I gather. So uh, there's mm. a lot of big so damage, not but a lot of work Australia to be done. Post not being able to get it out. It's The, the stuff's not arriving in the first place. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's um, problems back and forth all over the place and all over the state and large areas of the state yeah. too where where the, uh, the rail needs to be put back in place. Yeah. Mm, yes, it'll be a while before... And not not to mention the roads. Yeah, so... Or we won't, won't mention the roads. Oh, no, we don't talk about the roads. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're doing your online Christmas shopping, get in early, because it, yeah, it may not arrive till Australia right. Day, so yeah, yeah. thereabouts. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Merry Christmas yeah. in we'll January. save it for next year. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for that, Adam. Adam's story will be back at one o'clock. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details now. Jake Phillips at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So still no, not too much rain in the next few days or so? No, not too much overall. There are a couple of areas that might be a, a bit of an exception in terms of getting some increasing showers later in the week. At the moment, though, we've uh, got a high-pressure system over the region, which is dominant. So that's keeping most areas fairly fine, particularly over the inland, where it's indeed not just fine, but sunny as well. Uh, the exception today is the northeast corner, where we're likely to see some showers and possibly a couple of thunderstorms develop again this afternoon, particularly around the northern tablelands, so areas up uh, sort of north of uh, Armadale up to the border. Uh, there is a, a slight chance that a couple of storms may become severe, but it's less likely than it was yesterday when we saw some quite large storms in fact developed through the, the afternoon and evening yesterday so it's really just that northeast corner today uh, elsewhere southerly winds are keeping things fairly cool uh, temperatures mostly near or a bit below average for this time of year tomorrow we'll see a couple of showers about the coast as well um, but uh, fairly isolated and we might just see a couple of afternoon uh, showers or thunderstorms develop across the northern inland as a, a weak trough develops in that region tomorrow afternoon uh, things get a little bit more interesting as we move through to Thursday and Friday. So we're keeping our eye on a, a trough that's expected to develop um, off the Queensland coast and quite likely develop into a low. It looks like it will stay over the Queensland coast, but it could direct more shower activity onto the northern part of our coast through Thursday and Friday. So at this stage, it's looking like Queensland will probably um, bear the brunt of that system. But from about uh, Coffs Harbour northwards for Thursday and Friday, there could be some fairly persistent showers at times. So we're keeping an eye on that. At this stage, as I say, it doesn't look like anything particularly heavy, but um, things can change. So we'll be looking at that one. And then as we uh, move even further forward through the outlook period, um, from 
Saturday onwards. It looks like, again, just a few coastal showers through the weekend. And then during the early part of next week, uh, it's shaping up a, that another trough will come across from the west, and that might bring a, a slightly extended area of uh, unsettled weather through the early part of next week. But uh, the computer models, as they often are at this sort of uh, time uh, lead time, are a little bit uncertain about that. Yeah, that, so that rainfall that you're talking about there, so it was forecast, it could be quite a bit around Lismore and uh, the north coast, but that doesn't seem to be eventuating, so that's, the, the forecasts have backed off from that. Uh, yes, a, a few days ago it was looking a, a, a bit more concerning. Some of our computer models had been indicating some fairly heavy falls potentially up, up in that area. And while it's now looking like steady showers through Thursday and Friday, it's not looking um, anywhere near as heavy as some of those earlier indications. So good news there, but we do need to keep an eye on this situation. Mm, Yes, indeed. Keep an eye on it, indeed. All right. Thanks for that, Jake. Thanks, Michael. Jake Phillips at the Bureau. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. The canola crop in New South Wales could be down in volume by at least 20% and there's quite a bit of mould in the crop. It's a blow for some farmers who are expecting one of the best canola crops on record. It's also prompted the Australian Oilseeds Federation to uh, increase the tolerance for mould in the seed. Southern Riverina grain merchant Matt Kelly told Cara Jeffrey about the new canola seed segregations and how the, fa- the, how the harvest is trending generally. Harvest is probably at least delayed by about two weeks, you know, just generally due to the, the wet weather. And, and what's actually come about is that we've seen quite a lot of high mould count uh, in the canola just due to the, the wetter weather that we've actually had. Uh, and AOF came out this week and introduced a, a seasonal, a new seasonal grade for um, canola and, and GM canola to allow for a higher mould count um, uh, in the canola. And so will that be a good thing for growers? Uh, look, it is. Um, uh, the, the kind of main grade can one, you're only allowed five out of a 1,000 seeds uh, and industry's increased uh, another grade that allows up to 40. Um, at this moment, we're not seeing um, growers discounted at all. But you know, the big thing that probably happened this week is we've probably seen our canola prices back you know, $30 to $40 um, this week, and that's just kind of the back on... Um, following you know, offshore offshore oilseed markets and with a, a stronger Aussie dollar. And, and also, we've seen a lot of growers selling, mainly in Western Australia uh, and South Australia. Their, their harvest you know, is probably near perfect over there, and, and Western Australia expects another big one as well. And, and we're not seeing that um, you know, kind of export demand we've seen the last couple of years, was obviously with Canada with a, a large crop and, and also Europe. So... As a result, um, you know, even though we're probably going to have some quality issues, it's, it's perceived that it's not really going to affect our exports too much at all. How are people feeling towards the prices for canola, barley and wheat? Look, I think they've been quite probably disappointed, especially with the canola coming back, but we're still seeing really good quality oils. Like, um, you know, even considering um, the kind of weather issues we've had, I think more the, the main um, disappointment is probably using that, that losing that... Um, a potential uh, yield um, you know, that a lot of crops and a lot of people are expecting some of the best canola crops ever. And then obviously uh, with the weather we've had, just losing some just due to flooding. So we'd expect probably on the potential, we're probably at least back 20% of, of what people were expecting um, you know, a couple of months ago. And what impacts are you seeing there for um, any barley that's coming off? 
Yeah, we're definitely likely to see very small stocks of, of malt barley uh, this harvest, um, especially in southern New South Wales. Look, all the demand at the moment seems to be you know, China, and, and they've got a really strong appetite um, for our wheat, especially the ASW wheat, and we've seen a lot of um, you know, demand coming in for uh, for bulk shipments and also containers. Um, but you know, there's plenty of SFW uh, interest as well, and, and that's been quite interesting. Um, I think the trade or, or exporters are expecting to see some, but you know we're only seen in kind of isolated pockets at the moment. But you know, we don't expect to really get into wheat for at least another two weeks around here. So um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the quality comes off when we get into it. That's Southern Riverina grain merchant Matt Kelly speaking there to Cara Jeffrey, and just repeating: the Oil Seed Federation will allow 40 mouldy canola seeds per thousand, up from just five seeds per thousand previously. You're listening to the Country Hour, 19 minutes to one. Well, as we heard, the rain and flooding has really hit the quality side of grain production this year in New South Wales. But luckily, world demand for both feed grade and also high protein wheat is still pretty good as supply from Ukraine and the drought hit you. US grain belt continues to affect supply. Tobin Gorey with Commonwealth Bank says it's still too early to get a really good sense of how much production has been lost due to wet weather and flooding. But he says we'll have to wait and watch what comes into the silos. But he says people are worried about the hit to quality. Oh, that's quite right, Michael. The um, really, I think the start of it was mid-October um, when it really started to rain on top of already very wet soils and things like that. Uh, and from that time, so the question has been about, uh, was initially mostly concentrated on the quality issue, so being too wet gets downgraded from um, you know milling down to feed grade. But as this wore on longer, uh, and water sat there for for a longer period of time on some crops in some places, um, the issue of uh, quality is probably probably not as large. Uh, the issue of quantity, rather, probably not as large as quality still, but it's it's bigger than it was. Um, it's got bigger over time as the water's lingered. Now, we've also seen uh, some forecasts from some uh, some people looking at it that the canola crop is down 20%. I would have thought that the canola crop would be worse than that, considering some crops were washed away. Uh, well, well that, that, that's quite possible. I think, I think you know, what you're pointing there in general is that you know, we, we, everybody has a fairly good idea that, it's going to, that the impact is going to be substantial on both quantity and quality. Uh, but the precise... Uh, configuration is is probably really not going to be known until we're sort of well into harvest and we've got a good look at what actually comes in to what receivable sites. You know, the, generally, there's the crops dying or falling over and so on. Um, the quality downgrade, but there is disease issues with that that amount of moisture around and um, and hanging around in particular. Um, all those things you're talking about there. But the, the mould and so on um, become a greater issue. And also wheat. Now, um, people were hoping for higher protein wheat. That seems to be what the world is demanding at the moment. They really liked some more high protein wheat, but uh, that's taken a hit too. I mean, they're still hopeful of getting more in the in the north, but uh, it, it looks like that the chances of that are decreasing too. Oh yeah, that's right. I mean, you can see that in the pricing pattern because. You know, really, as as the as issues became, well, the floods became evident over here in sort of eastern Australia and New South Wales is one one really bad place for that. What, what you've seen is uh, the price of billing wheat rise. So APW one has probably from that time probably jumped up you know, anywhere from sort of you know, around, say around fifty bucks a ton. There's a few other things going on, but seed wheat's fallen about that much as well. So 
And probably the best way to look at it is actually just how the basis is compared to, you know, offshore alternatives. So, you know, right now, um, you know, APW1, you know, in Australia's east was, prior to the floods, it was at a fairly hefty discount um, to, to offshore prices. But now um, it's returned up to, you know, kind of levels where you, where where a normal circumstance, so there's no supply issues on either side of the on the side of that. Um, the, um, the basis is the discount has got a lot shallower; it's a lot smaller than it was at the time. The opposite has occurred though for feed wheat. So, so feed one against U.S. corn, uh, the basis discount there is you know, got sort of a hundred and something dollars larger per ton in Aussie uh, than it was before all this rain. So do you think that we'll be keeping a lot more feed wheat or feed grain here in Australia and feeding it to livestock or even maybe even try to export it? Yeah, I, you know, it, it, it is a, it's a problem because obviously you get paid less for the, for the feed grades, but the, the context is that it's probably not the, not the worst time that could happen. So you know, the world is short of feed grain. Um, supply is pretty tight. Uh, so, you know, the export opportunity for that feed wheat is, you know, considerably better than it, than it would be at other times. And the other thing is, another thing we have is that, you know, the Australian um, Australian cattle prices are still high, but what's happened is that global prices have gone up to meet them rather than Australian prices going down to meet them. Uh, and, and, and we're competitive again. And if you add in that, you know, that, that basis discount there uh, on... So feed here is... You know, the, the 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 absolute price level still looks high compared to history, but it's not as high as it is in other countries. Uh, so we get a bit of an advantage there on that. So we may actually see, you know, we may export a bit of that feed wheat in the form of beef uh, rather than just the grain. Too. Oh right, okay. So feed it feed it out of steaks. Sell it sell it out of steaks. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Some of it will be steaks. Um, some of it might be burgers too. So, and mints. Um, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, you're value adding a lot. A lot more, um, but it's just that price difference too. So you're not. Um, it is relatively cheap here because there's still the, the, the crops are still quite large. We we, we don't think we'll uh, lose enough overall with to ease much of that basis pressure. To ease, sorry, to ease the entirety of that basis pressure. So it probably stays relatively cheap for someone um, compared to what someone uh, another you know, feedlot is paying for, say the US or somewhere else. So the crop in WA, South Australia, balanced against the losses in New South Wales, still coming up. What is it? Still going to be overall higher than average for a national crop? Uh, I suspect so. Yes, but uh, like I say, I think there's a big band of uncertainty around mm. how much has been lost as opposed to what's been downgraded. So it'll still be large. So you know, prior to these floods, we were on target for our third largest winter crop overall grains and, and oil seeds ever, and that would have meant that we had our three largest crops ever in three consecutive years, mm. uh, which is just how unusual the, the circumstances we're going through now are. Tobin Gorey is a commodity analyst with uh, Commonwealth Bank. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Flooding has devastated western parts of the state, but one town is set to breathe a sigh of relief as flood flood proofing is planned to make sure it's not isolated again. Quambone has been isolated at least five or six times this year due to flooding, cutting it off from Canamble to the east and Burke to the northwest. Dirk Joel is the roads manager at Canamble Shire Council, and he told Hannah Joes that the construction should begin before Christmas. 
Your own gully has dropped quite significantly now, but the gully only two weeks ago was up around the 400 mil level, which you know, effectively closed the road to all traffic. And your own gully is, you know, I suppose, a notorious spot along that part of the road network that uh, always tends to go under. The construction uh, that the council is planning there now, mm-hmm. will that prevent Quambone from being isolated again? It should effectively flood-proof Quambone Road and the access into Quambone. There are some smaller causeways along Quambone Road that will get water over, but but we never tend to have problems where we have road closures there. Yerone Gully seems to be the central area where we have most our problems. So the new box culvert that we're putting through there will effectively get the road out of that flash flood level. When is this project supposed to commence and how long will it will it run for? So Council awarded the tender back in uh, October um, to a company called um, Connex Group based in Sydney. We're hoping that uh, we'll see construction commence before Christmas and, uh, and should be uh, completed um, by the end of February. Mm. And that kind of all depends on how much it rains again and floods, right? We are the victim of uh, and at the hands of Mother Nature. And we're, we're hoping once we get a start on the project, we have some leverage to get some continuation in because we have to establish, establish I suppose, a, a road bypass around the gully so we can work on there unhindered. So, you know, hopefully once we get in there and we're able to work and establish our bypass... Um, we can um, start working there and you know, do bypass pumping and stuff like that to manage flows through there so we can sort of get cracking and the weather may not affect us as much as, as it does with us trying potentially trying to get a start on the site. Any plans to seal that unsealed road that goes from Quambone to Burke that gets impassable as well? Mm, not at this stage. But, um, but, you know, never say never. It's, it's something that I suppose, you know, eventually would most probably be a, a, a partnership proposal that would be envisaged between a number of councils to deliver, but, but um, not, not, not something that council has on its radar in the immediate future. Dugald Bucknell is a grazier who's lived in Quambone all his life. He says the construction has been a long time coming. It's absolutely marvellous that at last, after half a century of needing it, that the Yaron Gully is going to be uh, fixed. It's a natural place for the Castle Ray to uh, break once it gets to a certain height. It's a, it's a sort of um, escape route. Uh, so, yes, it's a, it's a marvellous news to hear that at long last um, they're going to fix the, the Yaron Gully on the Quambone on the Road. How much of an inconvenience has it been to you every time that road floods and the town gets kind of cut off? I think with the, the change of um, lifestyle and that sort of thing over the last um, you know, 50 years, uh, technology and all those sorts of things and people's expectations uh, and, and drug availability, as in medical drugs. You know, 50 years ago, people who had blood pressure or heart problems or all those sorts of things, well, it wasn't treated, whereas now, now it is, but it's essential to have that medication. Any concerns about that unsealed road that goes to Burke? Would it be useful to have that fixed as well? Probably it's not a matter of being sealed, but it's a matter of, of doing the appropriate work on a floodplain to, to make it so that the, the floodplain isn't affected. 
That's Dirk Joel from the Canamble Council speaking there to Hannah Joes. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour. I've got a few uh, texts in. Uh, someone's, uh, uh, Greg's texted in from Ningen saying he's donated to Oz Harvest today and he says not a nice feeling to go without food. So he's backing the ABC's uh, move uh, to get donations to Oz Harvest. He says hopefully they'll raise a lot and uh, that will mean lots of meals uh, provided for lots of people in need. And uh, someone else happy to be listening to the ABC on their app on their phone because of transmission problems generally, so they can listen on the app, they reckon, all the time. Time for markets. Let's go to Wodonga Cattle, and Dax. Good afternoon, Agents Yard at 850 cattle. Quality was fair to very good with some excellent trade yearlings and veal. Heavy cattle numbers increased and quality improved. The usual group of buyers were at the market, however, there were fewer feedlot orders in place. There was a lot of volatility in the sale, with prices very erratic at times as buyers struggled to find a base. Veal sold 22 cents cheaper, odd sales more, 3.72 to 5.42. Trade heifers were back 30, 3.60 to 4.40. Trade steers eased 4 cents, 4.50 to 4.90. Trade steers with less finish, 3.90 to 4.10. Feeder steers only a few to quote, $4 to 4.90. For the medium weights, heavy steers to the kill, 3.59 to 4.32. Bullocks were back 10, 3.62 to 4.15. Cow sold 15 cents cheaper, 2.90 to 3.55. The middle run, 2.10 to 2.90. I'm Leanne Ducks, MLA. To Forbes Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Numbers lifted this sale with agents yarding 21,300 head. There was 15,800 lambs penned and quality continues to be mixed. There was a good offering of heavy and extra heavy weight finished lambs available along with a plan of secondary lines. Most of the usual buyers present and competing in a market that was firm to better on the well-finished lambs but eased on the plainer secondary types. There was 4,500 new season lambs penned and trade weights sold from $159 to $209 a head. Heavy lambs receiving from $216 to $225, while the extra heavies over 226 kilos sold from $228 to $256 a head. Old lambs followed that similar trend, with trade weights selling from $152 to $212, heavy lambs to 26 kilo from $205 to $229, while extra heavy weights sold from $220 to a top of $290.50. The balance of the lambs and 5,500 head is still to be sold. This is my Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. Carcor Cattle, Stephen Adams. Good afternoon. Carcor penned 373 extra to offer 1,357 good quality cattle, which included good drafts of heavy cows and a good supply of yearling feeder cattle. All the regular buyers attended to a generally dearer market. Limited vealers to process. Deer F542, the steers 543, the heifers. Light yielding steers to feed on considerably dearer 480 to 630 with an emphasis on the better bred types. Medium steers also dearer 350 to 550 with the heavy feeder steers to 489 cents a kilo. Heifers in the similar vein, firm to dearer, light heifers 400 to 515 with the medium weights 350 to 435. Uh, with the better types to deer trends. Heavy grown steers to process 380 to 416, grown heifers 400 to 416. Cows sold to deer trends, medium weights 270 to 312, with the heavy weights also deer 294 to 338, and heavy bulls 240 to 298. Stephen Adams, MLA at Carcourt. To Gunnedah cattle now. 
Good afternoon. A reduced panning of 1,750 cattle with yearlings well supplied, a fair supply of ground cattle and cows, a fair to good quality panning of yearlings mixed for breed, condition varied throughout with heavy cattle for processors in fair numbers. The regular processors and feedlot operators were in attendance, limited supplies of lightweight young cattle met weaker demand and sold as much as 20 cents cheaper for steers, 480 to 590 cents a kilo. The heifer portion were a shade dearer in places, 300 to 556 cents, Medium and heavy yearling steers cheaper, as much as 28 cents on secondary lines, only slightly so on the better quality lots, 340 to 536 and 370 to 466 cents respectively. Cheaper trends on medium and heavy yearling heifers showing moderate falls, 330 to 490 cents the medium weights, 338 to 440 the heavy weights. Restricted processor competition on heavy ground steers saw a much cheaper trend, 340 to 380 cents. Cheaper trends of 16 to 19 cents on heavy cows with three and four scores, two 72 to 310 cents a kilo. James Armitage from LA in Canada. To Inverell Cattle and Doug Robson. There were 740 head yarded, consisting mainly of yearling cattle and cows, and a few pens of growing steers and heifers. Quality was good in a cheaper market, with a few restocker weaner steers selling up to 620 cents. Heavy feeder steers were 10 to 20 cents cheaper, depending on breed. They ranged from 360 to 448 cents. Medium weight feeder steers were 20 to 25 cents cheaper, 470 to 520 cents. And feeder heifers had similar gains, they ranged from 328 to 478 cents. Bullocks and steers lost ground, as did heifers. Grown steers saw from 300 to 370, feeders up to 444. Grown heifers 326 to 358, and the feeders up to 350. Cow market was back by 15 cents. Two and three score cows saw from 230 to 286 cents. Heavy cows 290 to 319 cents. Bulls held firm, with the heavyweights topping at 288 cents. Doug Robson at Inverell. And to scone cattle now, Neil Geddes. Afternoon, numbers slipped by 120 for 798 mainly younger cattle, very few export pens yarded. Prices again cheaper. Over 200 kilogram vealer steers of the restockers, 30 cents cheaper, some breed related, 500 to 636 cents a kilogram. Same weight have a portion, 40 cents cheaper, 400 to 556 cents. Medium weight yearling steers of the restockers lost 10, 402 to 536 cents. Medium weight yearling heifers also out of the restockers, 12 cents cheaper, 400 to 476 cents. The best prime veal of the butcher reached 510 cents a kilogram. Ground steers of the process is cheaper, 360 cents. Heifers also cheaper, 300 to 330 cents. Heavyweight cows lost 8 cents, 285 to 310. The best heavy bull reached 294 cents a kilogram. Neil Geddes going cattle for the MLA. And that's the market information for today. And uh, Rodney's texted in on all this wet weather. Says stripe rust has been uh, has had a massive effect on quality and yield in wheat at his place. He says he sprayed three times for rust and it still severely affected the wheat. He says uh, it's his view that wheat breeders have focused too much on yield in recent years and dropped the ball a bit on disease packages. On the country hour, time for the news.